Welcome to the Perfectly Flawed podcast. On this podcast, I am your host, Renee Fox, and I chat to various people who are willing to be open and vulnerable about their own experiences with mental health and sport. Please keep in mind that the things discussed on this podcast are people's own experiences and is not medical advice. If anything in these episodes is triggering for you or you feel like you need assistance, please contact a health professional or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of the Perfectly Flawed podcast. I know it's been a while since I have published an episode but I'd rather give you quality stuff than spam you with episodes every week. So in this episode I'm joined by Patrick Fisher who is from P3 Performance Psychology. He is able to shed so much light on mental health and its relationship with sport. There is so many things to unpack in this episode, so I don't want to keep this intro too long as the episode itself is quite lengthy compared to some other episodes. Please do keep in mind, though, suicide is spoken about in this episode. So as mentioned in the first intro, please contact Lifeline or reach out for help if anything is triggering for you. I really do hope you enjoyed this episode. So welcome to the Perfectly Ford podcast. For those that don't know you, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Patrick Fisher. I'm the principal psychologist at P3 Performance Psychology. I also do some counseling psychology. Uh, previously to that, I spent 12 years uh, as a coach and director all throughout Swimming Australia. Uh, and across that time period, really became passionate about psychology. I think most people have spent time in sport, understand the value of mental skills, both from performance uh, and a mental health perspective. Um, and so I developed and, and became a, a psychologist and really want to give back particularly to the sporting community, but uh, definitely to the broader community. Um, and so super excited to talk to you today because I think this podcast is a really valuable um, idea in talking more openly, particularly in the sporting community about psychology. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important. And I don't think it's spoken about enough. So hopefully this gives that platform to open that conversation up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, as you just said, I think there's a big even mystery to what psychology even is and, and how we use it and, and how we could engage and what the benefits are and what that looks like and so hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about all of those things right as we go through absolutely so obviously like you're interested in psychology and sport how did you get into that like what was the main drive to start this yeah yeah really good question so it started it was a long time ago i think you know i was an assistant coach back in sydney 2008 um and it was really clear to me, even from that position, um, that we had access to, you know, the best exercise physiologist, um, physiotherapist, biomechanics, you know, in, we use the term support staff integration. We could really get, you know, everything that we needed to help athletes be their best holistically. But the gap was psychology. Um, we didn't have access to psychologists and then psychologists, and hopefully I don't say this disrespectfully to the industry, but then the psychologists that we did get often just didn't understand the context of high performance sport or of swimming and 
um, the things, the structures that were that were difficult. Um, so for me, um, as an assistant coach at that time in a, in a program that didn't have a lot of resources, my thinking was I needed, you know, professional development as a coach. And I thought, and I still think this will probably circle back, but um, I'll go and upskill in psychology and I'll provide that as a coach. Um, that was how I really got started. And then over that period of studying psychology and then working in psychology, um, developed a passion where I said, hey, instead of just working with my own program and my own athletes, um, I can take this broader and have a bigger impact, right? Um, which, is how I, which is how I got into it. Um, and I still think, I suppose to cycle to that, I still think the biggest impact we can have in psychology is with coaches, right? Coaches are there every day. Um, you know, if you're on the national stream, whether it's an age group or a, I'm talking specifically swimming here, which is mostly my background, but if you're a, <laughs> if you're on the, you know, the age group stream or the open stream, you know, you're training generally in the four to five hours a day. Um, so giving people that lead and develop that environment with the fundamental psychology knowledge to build um, the mental skills of their athletes, both for life and sport, I think is where the biggest impact can happen. So that's most of the work that we do, but of course we work with individual athletes as well. So that's a long answer to how I got <laughs> psychology. No, that's awesome. And I think particularly what you said, and you know, there's always physios and the physical aspect that support is there. And I think we talk about it a lot, you know, you know, sports and mental game. I think that sentence alone is brought up a lot, but we don't actually delve into it any further than that it's just that statement I agree so much and isn't it interesting right we go you know sport sports and mental game and I say well what are we doing for that part of the game right and normally we get blank faces right you know what we're doing it. and then we we even talk you know at each transitional level right you can even go from you know the 16 year old age group athlete to the 18 year old starting to make that transition to seniors to seniors to you know, I'll say sub elite and then elite each, each of those transitions is a very clear mental step. Right? Yeah. And, and what are we doing um, to support that mental step? And the answer is not a lot right now. Um, and then we kind of have to delve into why, right? I think that's the really interesting, not just, Hey, throw our hands in the air and, and kick and scream that it's not happening. Um, you know, a big reason is that, you know, as psychology is in an industry uh, within sport, we haven't been able to articulate the value well enough. And we haven't been able to show people um, and be there with people to say, hey, this is what it looks like. And these are the benefits. And so I think that's an important step uh, in being able to do that. Absolutely. And I think even now, just mental health in general is sort of being spoken about a little bit more. So it'll be interesting to see how that conversation translates into sport over the next few years. It, it will be. Uh, it, it, and of course, there's been a lot of acceleration in, I say, the destigmatization right, of mental health probably in the last 10 years. Um, but working in the field, particularly in sport, I say sport is probably still another 10 years behind that. Right? And yeah. you definitely see some of, you know, the bigger sports. We say the AFL is one of, of note for me, um, you know, who have mandated psychologists to be part of teams. Um, so there's some good kind of sister, uh, systemic um, strategies and interventions happening, which is great. But the, the thing that I still see consistently is most people saying, you know, we're supportive of mental health. Um, we want to be doing, you know, the right things and putting the right processes in place um, until it's the individual who's struggling 
And then it's, I don't, I don't want to see a psychologist. I don't need that help, which to me is the clear sign that that stigma is still there, right? It's, I support mental health and mental health is important until it's me. And then I don't want people to know and I don't want to have to address it. And so I think, you know, once we get to a point where people can openly go the same way I have a shoulder niggle, right? Same way I have a hip niggle. I've got, you know, whatever else is going on in life. I need to go and speak to someone. I think that's where we need to get to. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So what does a day in the life of a performance hike look like? What is it that you do? Yeah, yeah, good question. It can be broad. And I, I suppose we use the mental health continuum. And again, I kind of simplify some processes and some of the psych industry won't like me doing that. But I think it's part, <laughs> of, it's part of getting our message out, right, is that we have, you know, from psychology on the, you know, the far end, we have high performers, right? So we have people who potentially are, very mentally healthy right and huge resilience mentally strong not to say that that doesn't fluctuate in itself right as we know that it does but psychology still has value to those and probably more value to those people and athletes in trying to continually get those one percent improvement right because at the elite level that's what it is Uh, and most of that improvement is in psychology is in mental skills Um, you know you've spent generally by that time if you're at that level 10 years plus perfecting your craft whether that's your physiology your biomechanics your snc a lot of people haven't spent any time on the mental side right and so if you want those quick improvements that's potentially where they are for all the time um there's a great performance psych michael gervais who who explain who explains it as um you have you know your craft you know and yourself you know, and which do you need to master, right? And so we would say mastery of self becomes before mastery of craft, right? You yeah. really can't master, truly master what you want to be good at um, until you've mastered yourself. What does that mean? You know, are you aware of the things that drive you? Are you aware of the barriers? Do you have strategies um, to deal with them? Um, so that's the high performance end. Um, and most of my work sits in, in that area across individual athletes, coaches and teams right so most come to us and say you know we want to use mental skills to improve our performance and now at some point within that there's always a well-being conversation and there are always conversations about balance yeah that come along with that of course they are fundamental on the other end um, of course we have the mental health side all right um, and so that is you know athletes who are normal people which sometimes gets for- forgotten um, who are struggling, who have, and a lot of the times, I'd say a small amount of the time, those struggles can be a part of the journey of elite sport. But a lot of the time it's outside of life, right? And it, it starts to impact sport. And that's where then they start to look for help from us, um, which is normal from from psychology, right? It's a combination of, you know, social and transitional and, and psychological uh, and behavioral always. Um, and so a smaller amount of my work, but it's definitely a key part of my work is in, making sure people who engage with us are, are mentally healthy and have the support that they need. Yeah, absolutely. Everything is um, interlinked, which I mean, is great that everything works together, but if one thing falls apart, it tends to be a domino effect that everything else starts to slide as well. I agree 100%. And I think even more so, I would even take it a step further in that uh, most often it's not just one thing, right? It's a one thing and it's a domino, but actually when we take a step back and we really look, there's a series of things that are hard or difficult or, you know, that have been piled on top and 
maybe that there's you know one moment that makes it really tough and starts that domino but when we actually take a step back and have a look it's hey you know you've got all of these things going on in life right now and so it makes absolute sense that it's tough and we're struggling right now right yeah. like that's that's the i think and one of the big values of psychology is being able and i'm sure you know anyone who's engaged with a psychologist knows is that it's that normalization right you know most yeah. people think it's you know i'm i'm struggling i shouldn't be struggling with this particularly in sport you know i'm resilient i'm tough i need to have these things but to be able to come in and say no actually everything that's going on in your life right now means it should be really hard and maybe let's talk about some strategies to get us through this tough period and then back on track yeah so going off what you just said there in the sense that, you know you know this shouldn't like why am i struggling like mm. i shouldn't be yeah um do you think that that comes from sport itself is that there is sort of a stigma in sport that as an athlete you have to be mentally tough to get through the training and the schedule and everything that sport is do you think there is that stigma that stops people from going to get help that is a you know one of those questions that it's a i'm going to give a classic psych answer here it's one that sounds simple but is really complex um and so the way i i suppose i'll try to simplify it is that no matter who we are based on the environments that we grow up in and that we're a part of, we develop ways of thinking. We develop, you know, over time, you know, really strongly held beliefs about the way we respond to certain situations. Right. Um, and most of the time, those strongly held beliefs are adaptive in a certain situation. All right. And so in this situation, and we've kind of talked about something like the idea of unrelenting standards like i have really strong standards that i that i should be able to meet and whether we put that as in i'm an athlete that can cope with anything and is tough and resilient um, and i have rules and and etc um, which is something we definitely see with nearly every athlete that we speak to right yeah. that is required um for high level performance right um but it can develop into too strong of a belief right and it can also develop into a belief where it becomes like we've just said maladaptive in other situations in life so when we take that mentality away and we start to take it on a bit of you know as you know our, our identity right is that i should be this person all the time that's where it starts to become an issue and that's where again in psychology it's not necessarily about you know this all or one stigma but it's about where does, you know, a thought pattern or a behavioral pattern work and is good and is adaptive. And then where is it not? And being able to clearly identify that. And we kind of get into then, you know, more frameworks and a big one that kind of links there is, is the idea of psychological flexibility, right? So I'm able to decide um, what is best for me based on the context, right? Yeah. Um, and so with mental toughness in particular i suppose as we as we go through let's even talk granular at a sport level mental toughness is great for the training that needs to happen and the commitment and the self-discipline we know really clearly from the literature mental toughness can be a barrier from returning from injury right you tend to want to push too hard you tend to not want to take time off and you tend to extend that injury and potentially make it more than it is so there's always interesting complexities right the idea of um we should be more vulnerable yes but you know when and when not right when do we have to be honest with ourselves and be like hey it's time to be tough here right 
And yeah. when do we, and when can we step back and say, actually, I need to be vulnerable and talk and there's things going on. And I think that links to then even broader ideas of, you know, can I be someone who is tough and strong and resilient, but have weak moments? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Of course you can. Right. And vice versa. Right. And so um, I suppose to wrap all that up, the idea is that we don't box, right. It's not, we're trying to be mentally tough or we're not trying to be mentally tough. It's really contextual. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if I was to ask like a random person in the community, how, like what kind of characteristics would you say an athlete has? And I think the typical responses would be strong, tough, resilient, all those mm -hmm. things. But I also think that when you put those on, that's not just physical, that's mental too, as you were saying, like being mentally tough. But then it's also the way the media portrays an athlete to be. And as soon as they show a different side, it's like in quotations, a bad thing. Like they shouldn't be doing that, but they're also human. Like they have a broad range of emotions. They're a human being mm -hmm. just like everybody else. Just because they're an athlete doesn't mean they're not human. Absolutely. Right? I think that's so great. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because um, the first thing when you said that question, you know, when people, when the general public would ask me, you know, what are the characteristics of an athlete? The answer is the same characteristics as everybody else. Yeah. Right. Realistically, that's the answer. You're a hundred percent right. So what kind of, I guess, on that, what kind of impact do you think social media plays in, I guess, you know, the stigma and the way that we should be? And then even to the point of, like, comparing yourself to other people. Yeah, again, a classic psych answer, very, <laughs> very complex um, response. And I suppose the first and I think the most truthful answer is we don't really know. And I think we need to be really clear um, on that, that we don't fully know yet the impact of, of social media. Um, we're seeing obviously some different um, aspects, both positive and negative, and I think that's important to say, um, of social media, but really at a, at a research level, at a data level, it's too early for us to say, right, what, what are these impacts? But, you know, when we take a step back and look broader, the same way we just kind of spoke about athletes and, and strength and resilience and, and unrelenting standards, the environment is also conducive to wanting admiration and being recognition seeking and comparing with others, right? Um, we want to limit that to a, to a degree, but that is part of the environment and wanting to win and wanting that recognition um, is something that you can't really shy away from, right? But it's, yeah keeping it in context always. And so obviously social media then putting that in adds another level to that, right? It's that, you know, now we can get all this recognition, we can get even more recognition. We can get it young. One I speak to a lot of people about in swimming all the time is, um, you know, we're seeing a lot now of, you know, sponsorships that happen for young age groupers, right? Like between, you know, down to 11, I think is kind of the youngest I've seen. And now they're getting recognition on social media. And so will that again, drive an environment that is at least makes it more likely for that individual to seek recognition from others and gain excessive amounts of value from that? Of course, right? Um, does that mean it will happen for everybody? Of course not. There are, there are other environmental factors as always. Um, but social media is an interesting one. And I think the idea of recognition seeking and comparing with others is a really interesting one, um, in the sporting environment, because again, like unrelenting standards and, and toughness, 
it is something that's okay. It's just as with anything in moderation. Yeah. And it's so hard. And I think even to, um, you know, with the sponsorships, I think then, you know, if you're looking at social media in particular, um, you know, you get more followers and more likes, but it also opens you up to more criticism because there are people online that can be really harsh. Mm. And especially at a young age that can have a really big impact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so I think one of the important things that we'll often try to teach people regardless of um, where, you know, whether they come to us for, for performance or mental health is this idea. And we kind of spoke about it a little bit before that, you know, others, others feel the same as what we feel, right? Yeah. That's, that's generally, again, one of the big normalizing people come in. It's like, I, you know, everybody else is doing so well and I'm struggling and I'm not handling. And, and it's like, no, no, every, you know, more than likely, if anybody was in your situation, they would feel the same. Right. That's the, and then putting that in context in a couple of ways, the first way, you know, from a performance anxiety perspective, right. Is, Hey, everybody in the race generally probably feels the same amount of nerves and anxiety you feel right. And not basing then your race plan off, right. Cause others will have, for example, an anxiety response where they throw the race plan out the window and decide they're just going to go on the first 50 of a 400. Right. (laughs) And if, and if you don't realize that they're feeling that, and they're taking out a race too quickly and being able to stay, you know, in your own lane, it's going to impact your race. Right. And it's the same thing with social media, being able to step back and go, Hey, I'm getting all this negativity, but understanding where it's coming from, from their perspective, that ability to, to nearly empathize with those people, like what, what's going on for them. Right. Obviously yeah. there's something going on for them is a really strong position to be able to be in, to not let those things affect you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I listened to a um, a podcast, The Imperfects, with the Resilience Project, and they talked to um, a guy called Ben Crow. And I'm sure there's a few people that have heard of him. Um, and the way that he spoke with Ash Barty and some of the interviews that she's done, and a lot of the questions that they said that she gets asked is, you know, how do you deal with other people's expectations mm-hmm. and the pressure? And she goes, well, what pressure? Mm-hmm. Because otherwise I'm thinking about things that are out of my control like I can't control their expectations of me if I've done the hard work then that's the result I'll get the only expectations of pressure is from me not from anybody else yeah absolutely I I love that so much because I would agree most people come to us at some point and it's you know their initial goals are to a degree they might have other things but somewhere within it is I want to be able to deal with high pressure situations and high stress situations and still perform when I feel that and we definitely don't start with that because it take you've got to take people on the journey right so but in the essence there are no high pressure situations there are no high stress situations there's just one moment and the next moment and in those moments where are we focusing our attention where is our awareness what is our ability to control the things that are in control and how do we anchor to the things that actually matter to us and if we can do that and learn and it's a skill that we can learn then exactly as you just described, there's no pressure. There's just the things that Ash is trying to execute, right? Yeah. And her ability to focus on that. And that's absolutely a, a core foundation of performance psychology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to strip this all the way back, mm. who and when should see a sports psych? Or just a psych in general? Like who should be those people? Yeah. And when would you say that should happen? Nearly, nearly feels like a, a sales pitch here. I, I want to say, <laughs> I want to say everybody, um, and I want to say that honestly, 
everybody. Um, and I suppose we can kind of break down how that would look, right? So the first thing I kind of describe is, and we've said this before, you know, we do really clear, particularly in swimming, some sports aren't always as mature, but you know, if you turn up to any program in Australia, there's going to be half an hour before the session of prehab, um, S and C work, making sure we're doing the things to keep our bodies healthy, right. For the session. Um, and I have a real belief that psychology should be involved in that. There should be a mental skills proponent in that that's proactive, right? So we're not waiting until there's an issue. And the, the way I describe it is, you know, you don't put 200 kilos on a, on a back squat, get someone to squat to the bottom and then start teaching them how to squat out of it. Right. Yeah. And that's what we do with mental health a lot of the time, you know, and really when we look at it from that perspective, it's, of course it's hard. Right. And of course, a lot of people, then that becomes a lifelong process. Right. So for me, the perspective is why don't we teach these strategies first? So when the life stresses come, we're already able to deal with it. Right. We do that for everything else, for racing, for training, for physio. I think mental skills should sit there. Um, so that would be my first thing. I think everybody, how would you do that? It's we're still in a place where just having everybody come in for individual sessions um, we're not there yet right of course um, so is it group sessions right is it is it you know one team session once a month or once every three months or once every quarter or just just starting that process is it you know coaches coaching sessions where coaches are getting some of the basic tools that they can take and build in right physios aren't there every day right? psychologists don't need to be either so um, I think that's the first thing and I think you could make such an impact by having that strategy right of course then we get into when are people struggling and not seeking help that they should that again is is a difficult question i would say you know as soon as you feel like you need support you should be able to reach out right yeah and that's a very broad thing again I suppose to be our, in the very kind of clinical psych world is when is it starting to have an impact on multiple areas of your life is kind of that classic cue where we should definitely be seeking individual help at that point. Um, so comes back to my first answer, I suppose, is, is everybody, right? And, and when? I just think now. Yeah. Uh, I think the benefit is there. Um, but as I've said, I think as psychologists in the industry still, particularly in the sport environment, we still need to do better at articulating how those relationships can start and what it would look like. And it, I don't think it looks specifically like traditional psychology looks like with people coming into the clinic um, and doing our one hour consult once a week. Not to say that that's not valuable in some situations, but particularly in the sporting environment, it's how do we build it into the daily training environment? That's where we need to get to. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think I didn't realize the impact until I was exposed to it myself. But once you start doing it, you're like, why did I not do this earlier? Mm. Like, why? Yeah. Why is another thing? Like, you know, if you're going into a race, you tend to go get a massage from the physio to make sure that your body's ready. Mm -hmm. Why do we not do the same thing mentally? Like, you need to be mentally ready for a race. Why are we not doing the same sort of preparation? Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's a fascinating insight. I, exactly the way you described every athlete, you know, really that I've ever worked with has said that it was like, well, I don't know why we waited. You know, I wish we had access to this earlier. Um, but I think to, to follow up on the point about, um, you know, coming into race preparation, most people, once they take that step to start, 
that actually is really clear to them that, hey, you know, I want to stand behind, you know, we'll say a block swimming, but it could be I want to be at the beginning of my, my race, whatever it is that is important to me, and I want to feel prepared, right? Everybody knows that. And traditionally, we've thought about that as fully prepared. Right? Yeah. And a lot of people are now recognizing that I'm no way close to mentally prepared. I don't know yeah. what to expect. <laughs> um, I don't know what to do with certain. The honest truth is most people to a degree, you know, don't even know what emotions and thoughts they're having in the moment. You know, yeah. don't know what those thoughts or emotions mean. Don't know where they come from. Don't know for a lot of the point that we actually don't even have to do anything with them. Right. Cause it's the idea of worrying about worry itself is kind of the big thing understanding that hey the things that we have going on they're absolutely okay they're not going anywhere they're part of the environment how do we refocus you know our ash body how do we refocus on what's important to us um and so i agree you know that idea of being mentally being as mentally prepared as we are physically um is a big opportunity yeah, absolutely. So speaking of being mentally prepared, how would you, I mean, we'll talk about swimming because both have that sort of background. Yeah. How would you go into a race? Like what would you recommend like going into marshalling, standing behind the blocks? Mm -hmm. What would you suggest to be mentally prepared? Such, again, such a good question and <laughs> such a broader question. The first thing I would say is I always put it in context of, you know, because everybody's really clear on biomechanics and skills and, and physiology. So the first thing I would say is, would we ever go into a major meet and be trying, you know, new skill work, new drill work in the warm up, trying a race plan that we've never used before? Um, nobody would ever do that, right? Yeah. Like, we, like we know that is not the place. Like we train for, you know, generally our, our plans are 16 to 24 weeks, depending on what's going on. Uh, you know, for, to know what we're doing, for there to be no changes, for it to be automatic, right? Um, so the first thing I would say is, if you come to me and you want to know what do I do on race day, I'm going to say, well, actually, what do we need to do 16 weeks before that? Yeah. You know, because the honest truth is, it's not impossible. And I recently, we recently had athletes, like we just had uh, Australian nationals, which is different this year, not being Olympic trials. So to, what is it? Australian championships. It's a, a weird meet this year. Um, well, we did have a couple athletes call um, who hadn't engaged before and wanted that answer, right? Hey, I've had a meet the first three days. It's not gone well. Um, these are the things I'm struggling with. I want to get it back on track. What can I do? So yeah. of course, you know, we went through some strategies and to their, those athletes credit, they were able to get back on track. Um, with those strategies but for the majority of people that's not going to work right like having yeah. a half an hour conversation and then doing you know 15 minutes of mindfulness thinking about our goals and values and then being really clear on our race cues um, you're not going to be able to do that in half an hour and a lot of people don't even know what their race cues are which are, or their goals which I think is really interesting most people would assume that athletes are really clear and when we ask from a psych perspective they go yeah actually I don't know Right. No. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So actually, actually, I don't know. Well, we need to know because that's going to guide our behaviors and it's going to guide how we interact with thoughts and emotions. Um, so my answer to that question is we go back 16 weeks and we have a plan, a, a plan for our mental skills. That is the same way as your plan for developing your technique, for developing your race plan, for developing your race cues that are all linked in. So then the answer is, you know, where do we start? First thing, it, it really depends on the individual. It depends, you know, right, what are their barriers? What are the specific thoughts potentially that they're struggling with? What are the specific emotions potentially that they're struggling with? Um, what 
again, what are their goals and what are their values? What are barriers to attention at the moment? You know, are they someone who focuses too much on past performances? Is it worry about the future and not what's going on and, and what could happen, right? Um, so all of those things need to be assessed. And so I think the first thing is that happens number one through conversation, but it also happens through testing, right? We have yeah. really clear data. Again, I, I just try to link everything back to physiology because we're really good at physiology. When yeah. you start a preparation, it's 2000 time trial, it's 1650s on 130, it's 1225. Like we really clear in our testing, how many pull-ups can we do? What do we actually have to focus on to get better? Yeah. Performance psychology is the same, right? Where is it specifically? And for a lot of people, it's holistic, all right? So let's, as an example, let's talk through if we had someone who you know, had multiple areas that they could work on. So the first thing for me, we're gonna start with is awareness, all right? So are you truly aware of the thoughts and feelings that you're having and how they interact with behavior? All right. I'd say that's 50, 50 for the people that we speak to. Some are very, very aware and you would argue nearly hyper aware. Right. Yeah. And that's something that we definitely want to work through because when we say, you know, not focus on others is a key that we always hear in, but you absolutely can be too internally focused. Right. Yeah. So I often describe, and it's an oversimplification, thoughts and emotions as distractions themselves. Absolutely. Once it's time for performance, it's what do I need to be doing and I should be there, right? And I, I often kind of use the metaphor of a math test. If, you know, we were looking out the window instead of looking at the math questions, we, we wouldn't expect to do well, right? Yeah. And it's the same way with our thoughts and our emotions. So if we were looking out the window at our thoughts and emotions, which is kind of where they are, they're just this thing, right instead of the key things that i need to do it's no surprise that we kind of finish an event and go what happened yeah <laughs> right right and so the other 50 percent is um often you know the first time i speak to someone i say hey tell me what we're feeling pre-race tell me what the specific thought and i mean tell me specifically what the thoughts are right yeah and they'll go i actually i don't know i know it doesn't feel good i know it's not working they can tell me after they've had a poor event very specifically and clearly what's happening right which is normal because we attach and remember very emotive states and responses better right but the first thing is we need to be able to recognize observe and describe what's happening okay from there then it's for me the next one is attention all right so are we able to kind of no matter what's going on internally or externally keep our focus where it needs to be and where it needs to be is, again, individually defined. Right? For the most part, we would kind of call that in psychology, you know, what are the um, task-specific attention that we need? All right. Um, but again, for some, that might be, you know, three cues, three technical cues, right? Um, which is kind of the general way that, that we will work, but it is very individual. Um, but learning the skill to move because your attention, particularly in you know moments that matter, will get drawn, right? It will get drawn to thoughts. It will absolutely get drawn to emotions because the, the situation matters um, and it can get drawn to a whole bunch of different areas. So we kind of call that, you know, uh, broadly as over some our distractions. It will get, yeah. when it does, and I think the first thing for us to understand is it's not a negative that it does it will like you will get drawn to some degree to those things it's about are you able to bring it back 
Have you worked your attention skills to go, hey, I see that, it's there, it's okay, I can leave it there and come back to what's important. Because we definitely don't want the idea of, I should never feel this, I should never think this, right? No, everybody does. It's what we do with it, okay? From there, then we can kind of start delving into a little bit more of the, the really hard cognitive, which is, you know, do I have thoughts I start with, but sometimes emotions that really drive my behaviors? right if we do we don't want to right (laughs) right it's it's that kind of simple so do we have a thought and you know a very simple one is i can't do this you know this is too hard um things that are really things that are absolute truths so the way that you speak to yourself and they're often automatic i think this is a big thing in in sport we often speak to people they they use the term self-talk like what is our self-talk and how do self-talk is a really inefficient strategy right like we've just said, if our goal is to focus on performance cues, why are we focusing so much energy on changing these thoughts that are actually normal? Right? Yeah. Just let them be there. It's, it's, they're fine. You know, you're a human and it's all good. Just come back to what we need to do. But we want to make sure that we're, you know, we use the term diffusing or decoupling from thoughts and emotions, right? So they're not driving our behavior, right? The idea of I can't do this, you know, this is too hard. They're just simple versions. Um, but what is driving my behavior is goals and values, right? which would be the next thing. Once we've started to decouple and we've started to break that relationship between some of our thoughts and emotions, then we can start to go, hey, what really clearly are our goals? And we never want to move away from purely from outcomes. We often hear the process versus outcome focused debate and process is yeah. where it's at, right? And it is, right? And Because the simple is the processes will get us to the outcome right but we're not trying to particularly from an elite sport environment we're not trying to say the outcome's not important that's where psychology gets lost a little bit and people start to go oh this is just fluff right because at an olympics at an olympics we're there to win yeah exactly right we're there to win (laughs) we didn't train you know or olympic trials coming up in a few months for, for a lot of sports you know we didn't train for the last you know four and a half years now to to not make this team yeah but it's where is our attention and our energy best served for that to happen, right? And it's not on the outcome. The outcome is going to increase the distractions that we feel, the thoughts and emotions and potential worries and, and all of those things. It is the processes, right? And so a big part of being able to anchor to that um, in those tough moments is values, knowing who you are and who you want to be, right? So again, speak to most athletes and I'm sure you know yourself is how much have we actually reflected on that? How clear are we really on that, right? Um, for a lot of people, they've never thought about that. Mm. And, and that becomes your driving anchor, all right? Um, from there, then we start to go, well, if these are the things that are really important to us, which starts to get to the essence of kind of toughness and resilience a little bit, is if this is who we want to be, and this is what's important to us, are we able to do the things that are aligned to that no matter what's going on, right? So no matter the emotion, no matter the thoughts, no matter distractions, external, whatever's going on, are we able to do that? The only way to do that is to accept that difficult things will happen. Yeah. So in pursuit of this, right? in pursuit of this person that I want to be and these goals that I want to achieve, there will be tough situations, whether that's thoughts, you know, some form of doubt, whatever that may be, 
whether that's emotion, somewhat anxiety, right? Um, fear of failure, embarrassment, shame are all things that come up pretty consistently. Um, I even throw in physical sensations because I like it as a juxtaposition, right? Everybody knows it's like, hey, I'm going to have to go through some fatigue. Yeah. Right. But we don't want to think about our thoughts and emotions like that. Right. But it's the same. It's like, hey, you, you're going to have these things that are uncomfortable, accept them as normal and then move through. Where you start to get issues is when people try to control those things. When people go, I shouldn't feel that. I shouldn't think that. I can't perform when I have that. Right which is not the case. And that's the idea of worry about worry and the distress actually comes from that. Right? And it can snowball and go downhill. Um, really from there, we kind of get to our last point, which is identity, right? And we kind of spoke about this a little bit earlier is, you know, can I be, it's really contextual, right? We never want to have this view of ourselves as this is who I am, no matter what, right? It's, this is who I am or who I want to be. And then what is the best response based on the situation? And that's often where it is super valuable to talk to a psychologist and just talk it through and be able to, Hey, this situation is new. This situation is different. This situation is bringing up these feelings. You know, how do we work through this? What would it look like? Right. To be able to do that on your own is tough. So in essence, we would have a plan over 16 to 20 weeks to address all of those things. All right. Um, and if you kind of circle back, it's simple strategies that aren't, that aren't easy, right? So if you talk about attention and awareness, that's kind of sitting in the mindfulness space, right? Yeah. So are we engaging in mindfulness practice? How are we doing it? How are we doing it specifically to you? What are we building? Um, we know that 15 to 30 minutes is kind of the sweet spot, you know, 15 minutes being the minimum effective dose, 30 minutes kind of being the maximum. So Again, in elite sport, we're going to often find, number one, I don't use the word mindfulness. It's a dirty word. We don't like it, right? It's kind of the fluff. But if we say we want to develop attention and awareness skills, everybody goes, wow, that sounds like exactly what I need. Yeah. Right? It's the same thing. Um, but doing it in a way, again, that is specific to performance, making it contextual. All right. So once we're getting some basic development through, you know, recordings and we kind of do that progressively, you know, listening and, and doing our normal meditation, then we need to be taking that to training. Right. So can we start to do it in warm ups? Can we start to do it in main sets? Can we start to do it? Can we start to recognize our thoughts and emotions and pull ourselves back? Right. So it needs to be linked in. Um, same deal with, you know, we discussed a little bit, you know, decoupling and diffusion to begin with. That's a really hard process, like any skill development. You're going to probably yeah. have to come away from a session and go, hey, what thoughts or, or meet, what thoughts got in the way today? And you're going to have to write them down and you're going to have to then kind of work through a process of how can I respond differently? You know, I went, I can't do this. And I immediately stopped and, and stopped could mean a bunch of different things, right? It could mean I actually just stopped the session, which is a very, if that's happening, generally I'm probably already working with you because coach isn't happy, right? <laughs> right? Is, is kind of how it goes. Or it could be like, I took my foot off the pedal, right? And I knew I took my foot off the pedal, right? So how do we make sure that there's a decision in there about what we're going to, because sometimes, right? Here we go. Like, I can't do this because I have a shoulder niggle or because I have worked hard for the last three weeks and I am starting to get somewhat chronically fatigued, right? Sometimes the decision is to recover but we want it to be a decision, right? We don't want our thoughts to just be guiding our behaviors. Yeah. From there, goals and values take a lot of work. 
and take a lot of refinement. That's a never ending, you know, touching base and finding ways. Some of the, the things recently that have been really helpful is working through them with athletes and then finding ways that they can uh, reattach to them in hard moments. So it might be having them as initials on a drink bottle, right? It might be having them on a, on a pool boy. It might be, um, including them in your five minutes of mindfulness practice before something begins, but just reminding yourself when it's tough, right? Cause you tend to get that, you know, I describe it as a fog, right? When that fatigue is really high and, and things really matter, you get a bit of a fog that makes it difficult for you to focus on what's important. And then you kind of come out of it and you're like, like I knew I should have thought about my, my goals and values. Right. And, and in a sport perspective, we want to say, we don't want to get to the end of the meet or the end of a session and be like, damn, I missed an opportunity there. Yeah. We want you present in the moment so you can make the best decision. Um, in terms of then kind of emotional responses, it's very similar. That's talking through and decoupling and diffusing. Um, I'd say what's attached to that is then really we we pick out based on your goals and values, you know, what are the three behaviors that must happen? All right. And so for individuals, it could be as broad as, you know, I need to be turning up to training on time, right? <laughs> or I need to be doing whatever. And it can be, you know, as granular as I need to be willing to accept, you know, these difficult thoughts and emotions in this specific time. So it might be a specific session or it might be a specific meet. And so just having that, that frame coming in it's like hey i'm i'm expecting this this is okay and i i said to myself that i'm committing to learning how to, to deal and respond to this and i have practiced it through the other things that we've just discussed gives you the ability to then really key in on that behavior because from a performance perspective and i'd even argue from a from a mental health perspective, the rubber hits the road at behaviors right we often talk about um, thoughts and emotions in psychology, which are of course important, but the best responses come from behavior change. Yeah. Which are often the hardest responses too. Right. But if you're taking behaviors that create positive emotions for you, because they're aligned to who you want to be, you're generally working towards a better version of yourself holistically. Right. Most, most strategies that's what we're trying to get to. So I suppose that would be the 16 kind of the 20 we're building up to that. And then what does it look like at meet? Well, it looks like what are the strategies that are most important to you? Right. And it looks like potentially a little bit of a taper as well. So if you've been doing some really good 20 minutes of mindfulness practice, you know, maybe you just need a five minute recording that we've built for you pre warm up to get you started. You've already got your goals and values on your water bottle. So as you're going through warm up, if things aren't going that well, you've got your anchor, right? As you're going through warm up, you know, maybe you're not feeling the best because we all have this idea that we'll come through taper and we'll magically feel the greatest we've ever felt, <laughs> right? And this comes back to the idea that that doesn't happen, that that yeah. space doesn't exist. So expecting that it does starts to lead us to failure. But we've already set up that we're going to go through this no matter what, no matter the thoughts, no matter the emotions. We've already performed in training regardless of that. So we're set up to be able to do that, being really clear on our cues. So as we start to move through marshalling, now we can go, hey, I can actually take three deep breaths, refocus on what I need to focus on, and then go and execute. Right? As I'm executing, even still, we can get so granular, you know, my thoughts may get drawn to my competitors, right? That's not unrealistic, right? As I'm in the race, as I'm going through the 200 free, right? Can I recognize, which comes back to our first strategy, can I recognize that? 
in the moment and bring myself back. All right. So there, I suppose some of the, that would be a, a real kind of 20 week, 16 week preparation of how it would come together and how you would utilize those skills. And for the most part, people that engage in that um, do see, you know, really strong improvements, what I think is important. So that's both subjective in terms of how they feel, how confident they feel, um, performance, definitely from others. So a lot of the time we hear from coaches, you know, they're nearly a different person. Like, I can't believe how relaxed they are. We've actually, we've had a fair few coaches recently who have said, I can't believe the change in this athlete. I actually want to engage in this as a coach because coaches go through all those those emotions of at a meet too, right? Yeah. How do I not ride that that roller coaster? Um, and then, of course, what I think is really important to our profession is hard data that shows improvement, right? Because it's important that it it's not fluff, right? We need to and we need to be able to show that. So again, super long answer to what <laughs> strategies could we use, but I think it's important to understand there are a number and they differ individually but it's a process. It's training our mental skills the same way we train everything else. Yeah, absolutely. And you spoke about um, goals and values and I guess identity in that too. How do you think identity relates to sport and how do you think that then comes across through injury and then even Mm. more so into retirement? Yeah, really good question. And one, again, we deal with a fair bit. I suppose identity probably further to the point we made earlier is it's always develops to a degree from our from our life experiences right um so there will always be a component um sport then of course is a very specific environment so it makes sense that we kind of see reasonably similar sets of beliefs and sets of identities um, that people develop and so we kind of mentioned a few earlier, which is, you know, this idea of unrelenting standards and, and strong rule following, um, admiration seeking and, and recognition seeking is, is one very clearly. Um, we will often see definitely on a kind of a second tier on a less, you know, emotional inhibition um, and people not wanting to share emotion. And again, all of those things, uh, they're fascinating. And I don't have a specific answer to this point. All I can say is that all of those things if you empathize with an athlete, you can see how they've developed and why they would actually be important for their performance, right? And I think that's so important. Sometimes in psychology, we've just come in and go, ah, you're wrong. You should think differently, (laughs) right? And it's not that, it's not the case, right? That that set of thoughts and beliefs about serves a purpose, right? But it's about just being able to understand then in a different context, maybe it doesn't serve, right? And this now comes to the idea of career transition. So then what is the, the next set of um, thought patterns and, and behaviors that are going to serve me better in, in this environment or, or another environment? So it's a really difficult question because absolutely, right, there is a identity, you know, that athletes develop. I think there's a strong argument that we're not trying to say that we shouldn't develop that identity. It will be. There will always be to a degree some it doesn't matter who you are what context you will create some level of belief some level of of the way you see the world based on that right yeah um and again i think it's important to say that that is reflective of your situation um but how do we start to challenge that a little bit to a degree i think often it comes for me and we'll often see some big changes in identity in actually all of the other things we already discussed right 
So if you start to become more aware of, you know, when are these rules and standards not working for me, right? And we get to that a lot of times straight away with athletes who go, I need to leave for the meet at nine o'clock. If it's 9.01, I'm not going to race well. Yeah. Right. You know, and we go, and as soon as they say it, they go, yeah, that's not going to work. Right. And it's not going to work post swimming and it's not going to work. And, and being able to just have these conversations and process it starts to break it down. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that I particularly notice um, through lockdown. It's like, okay, well, you know, I can't swim. Oh, yeah. So who am I without my swimming? Like mm. I'm still, you know, I'm still me, but who is that me if I don't yes. have swimming? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to. And for you, I don't know how much you want to share. I'd love to hear like, how did, what was that thought process like? Like talk, you know, who is me? How, what did you get to? Oh, I'm still figuring it out now. Mm. I still don't think I've got an answer and I don't know if there is, you know, just a one no. fits all answer. There's not, no. it's going to continue to develop over time. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's a hard question and it's a hard thing to ponder, especially when you have so much time to yourself and that's all you have to do like you just spend so much time thinking about it yeah um, um yeah it, it's hard and you know being injured as well you know um you kind of feel like I mean you have to pull back to an extent you know you have to let your body recover and you have to pull back you know you can't do the same as what you're doing before you are restricted so it's a matter of finding a different way to go about it resetting those expectations resetting those goals to yeah. make sure that you, you can still progress but in a different way yes and, and uh, there's so many interesting things you said, you know, firstly that, you know, I'm still working through 100%. You, you never stop that, right? As you said, but I would even go a step further in this. There's no singular you. Yeah. Right. There's multiple, you know, and depending on the situation and context, but, but that is a thing that I still, we would definitely argue is, is important to, to knuckle down and put that hard work into. And it sounds like you have a little, like you put that thought process in and you've started to really think about it. A lot of people, that's a natural thing, which a lot of people don't do that, right? They never, no. they never. And, and that's where, you know, those, now there's kind of just these natural reactions start to come up, right? Um, and then in terms of, you know, resetting expectations, again, you can see, you know, if we've developed this belief that, hey, no matter what, I hit this training that I need to hit, that's important for me to get to where I want to get, super adaptive, right now until I have an injury and now I have to reset expectations and I don't like it. And that in itself creates anxiety and stress because I'm so attached to that. Right. Yeah. Um, and being able to just work through and break those things down. Super important. Yeah. And it's hard. And oh, yeah. <laughs> like, there's no doubt about that. It, it's hard. And sometimes it sucks. Mm -hmm. Like it's just not a fun time. No, I think you're right. And I would even argue that's the, probably the first thing that we would say to people um, when they come in is like, hey, this isn't going to be just a bit of chit chat and you leave feeling better, right? This is hard work. This is the same hard work, you know, that if you want to, you know, have a certain amount of physiology, if you want to be able to respond to lactate, you want to be strong, you want to have an aerobic base, all of those things, you know how hard they're going to be. Developing your mental skills is going to be just as hard. We'll develop a plan and we'll walk you through it. And we'll provide that support at every stage, but you better be ready to put that hard work in and, and be deep, dark and honest with yourself, right? Yeah. And I have definitely noticed that through different sessions, you know, sometimes I walk out of speaking with my psych and sometimes I do feel like there's a weight lifted off my shoulders and you do oh, yeah. feel that sense of relief. And then other times you go out and you're like, damn, that was really hard today. And you just need a day to just not do anything because you're just mentally tired. 
Yeah, exactly. You're hundred percent right. I love for you when you walk out and you feel that relief, what do you think that comes from? What do you think that process is? Well, for me, something that I've done for a long time and before I started speaking to a site, I bottle things up. Mm. That was my way of dealing with things is I'll just bottle up, not talk about it. It'll be fine. I'll get over it. So I think just being able to share it with someone else is a relief. Yep. 100%. It's exactly that, right? It's taking it off your shoulders. Um, yeah. And so that is a strategy that we, that we haven't discussed, but the strategy of just processing is so effective, right? Yep. Um, and so talking to someone is great kind of, as we've said, there's a stigma and some people really don't want to do that. Does that mean you still can't get that benefit? No, that's where things like journaling come in, right. And, and diarying and, and writing down. Um, so if, if people are listening and it's like, Hey, you know, I can hear the benefits and I'd like to get involved, but I still don't want to take that step. There's some steps, there's some pre-steps you can yeah. take, right. Further to you, I think to your question about what could you do on race day? This is, you know, that idea of processing often will schedule calls. They'll kind of be 15 to 30 minutes with athletes. And it might be kind of every day of a meet, the day before, kind of key periods for them. And it's just to let them do that. There is yeah. no strategy. There is nothing. It's just whatever's been swirling, just get it out. Just have a chat and you generally will feel better. Yeah, I definitely find that. And something that um, one of my friends said, and I love, and I was like, where'd you get that from? She goes, Shrek. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but she goes, a problem shared is a problem halved. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I'll probably yeah. use that in the future. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> but I said to him, like, where's that from? She goes, Shrek. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, so going back to um, like anxiety and things like that, how do you define mental illness and what do you think is like what do you see most common in athletes and obviously particularly in swimming yeah super great question uh i suppose again i'm answering all of them as such a classic psychologist which i I don't really (laughs) like but i would say there is no there is no traditional right there is no this is what we see and i don't think that also there is this is what anxiety looks like right? Or this is what depression looks like, or this is what a stress response looks like. It can be very different. Um, and I think that's important. And that comes back to a little bit of our awareness piece and being aware of what that, what that is for you. Right. Um, in terms of what we see most common, again, it really links to that point of, you know, I have seen everything from trauma, right. Which is all the way on the far end uh, to, you know, year 12 stress, right? It's kind of the, I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to uh, dismiss that, but it's much smaller in, in the grand scheme of some other things. And so um, it comes back to the point we made earlier for me is that athletes, no matter how many things they do well mentally and the strength that they have and the commitment and the self-discipline are still people like everybody else. And so that, what does it look like? I always kind of say it looks like what the general population standard is right so if mental health is in that kind of 30 percent area it's generally kind of what we see um at least in 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 practice and in clinic from a psych perspective and i think that's always an interesting challenge back to coaches to say hey if you've got you know 12 athletes or you know 9 to 12 athletes there's a chance that three of them are struggling right you put it in that perspective it's like well you know maybe i think often coaches would be like maybe i'll have one or two in my whole career right 
Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. And that's the idea that it is still quite hidden and it is still quite, but it is absolutely no different. Um, and I think a lot of people would even make the argument that it's slightly higher in sport, right? Because some of the things we've spoken about, the social medias, the pressures, um, the negativity that you can have to deal with. So you do have to be very good on your mental skills because the life stresses are higher. Right? Yeah. But I think the, the, the way that I funnel it back is, as always, put anybody into someone's shoes with a certain set of life stresses and more than likely you would get the same response, right? Yeah, definitely. So how would you say, like, if for a coach or even, you know, another squad member, if, like, what would you say the warning signs are? Like, if, you know, you can see someone struggling, what does that look like? And when do you think is a good time to step in and say something and just say, you know, hey, I've noticed, you know, some changes. Are you okay? Yeah, really... Again, really difficult question because, again, it will depend on the individual, right? Absolutely. How the individual presents, you know, normally. I think change is just a good um, indicator. When someone is when someone is changed from, you know, their normal demeanor, you know, something is going on. It might be small, it might be big, right? And so you can kind of, is it our normal, you know, we're a little more snappy today? Is it we're a little more reserved? You know, is it behavior change? Um, you know, not quite committing to things as much as we used to. Is it, you know, removing um, a little bit from, you know, the social gatherings that we used to, to do? Um, is it physical fatigue? I think is a big one and it's hard to, to pick up in sport because there's kind of an expectation, uh, expectation that there is already physical fatigue. Yeah. Right? But what is the driver of excessive fatigue? Um, there is a lot, obviously, you know, just, I hate to use the term attitude, um, but just attitudinal changes to a degree, you know, um, are all things to be aware of. How do you then have that discussion? I think is, you know, one of the reasons links back to the, the benefits of being proactive in psychology is we can then start to have those conversations and debriefs as a team led by a psychologist. Yeah. Right. Um, but that's very hard if you haven't got a pre-relationship yeah with an athlete right that's the the assumption is that you already have a really really good relationship with this but which we, we know right let's say in swimming if you're an eight you know there's potentially 40 people in your squad you know yeah you know so it's, un, it's potential that you're not going to have a great relationship with everybody and so so that's hard but i would say and i think it comes back to this idea of being able to empathize with others is if you do notice right um definitely take that step to say hey what's going on is there anything i can do recognize that you know, you may get a response, you know, and a very honest and truthful response. And then a great, we can provide support and offer help. You may also not. Right. And I just think the, the context to come at it from that perspective is just understand, right. That person now knows that you're there, right. If things change and and it progresses worse, they know at least one person has noticed and they could potentially reach back out. Um, but I would say, don't be afraid to ask how people are doing because you're scared of getting that, you know, that bite back response. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's always different, you know, um, if, you know, you rewind five years to me, if someone had to ask how you're going, my standard response is, yeah, I'm fine. Of course. I'm not going <laughs> to unload all my problems on someone that's just asked me. It's hard to be honest and, yep. um, you know, let yourself be vulnerable. Yep. Um, but if someone does 
feel comfortable in opening up to you how do you then provide that support like obviously it's important to let them know that you're here that you're available for support and that you're ready to listen mm. when you know how do you then provide how do you continue providing that support and when do you say okay you know I think things are a little more serious and anticipated how do I suggest that something else needs to be done yeah really good question I would say two things I would say number one is is listening and then questions and I think behavior because in essence what we're talking about in help seeking behaviors again is a behavior change itself right yeah and we're trying to lead people to that but right? we can't tell them ever right over time and so the first thing is okay you know I've, I've i've offered hey are you okay what's going on i've noticed and and great this person is willing to share like we've just said so just sitting there and listening to them is going to half their problem right in the words of shrek right yeah. <laughs> um so that's the first thing and we don't need to solution we don't need to do any of that right and and even as a psychologist i would definitely say that the biggest benefit that we provide at times is that right is just knowing that someone's going to listen from there right as you said you know things are maybe a little more serious right and we sometimes we don't always know where that line is i think the first thing is don't hold yourself to that standard we're not a trained professional right which is which yeah. is okay but the second thing is questioning once you kind of get to that spot where they have really told you what's going on and they've started to feel comfortable i think it's then asking hey what's our next step here and asking them not telling ever right like never you need to see someone or you need to you know change x I, this is one i see constantly is like well if you want to change you know your circumstances da, 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 you know right um that's going to pull people away quickly it's you know hey okay so you know we've just you know you've told me everything that's going on what do we think our next step is and i wouldn't say that's the first conversation either right? yeah and to them it could be i don't know right now that's okay change is a process we'll still be there to listen and slowly build um, that ambivalence and that discrepancy. So build their desire to seek help right? yeah. until it gets to a point where they go, Hey, you know, I find this really valuable. You know, maybe I'd like to get a little more help or maybe some specialized help or maybe, you know, and it, that could be in levels. It could be, you know, maybe it's a parent first, maybe it's a, uh, a coach second, right? Maybe, maybe then it's then finding out how I can get um, psychological support. So I think the first is listen. I think the second is question to help build those help seeking behaviors. Um, and then I think third, I would say third and fourth is understand that, you know, we're not a trained professional and we're not meant to have all the answers. Yeah. But at the same time, what are you doing? If you are a supporter or a caregiver, let's say, you know, going to that extreme end, what are you doing for yourself as well? Right. So you may need to speak to someone right yeah. also if, they, if they're speaking to someone um and again that could be a friend or or it could be a psychologist but the supporter often needs just as much support so that would be the thing Absolutely. i would keep in mind i think that's a really big thing that's missed and i think you know we see it a lot um you know if you see think about um like the elderly um you know mm -hmm. they generally have a caregiver and there is you know, financial support or other resources available for the caregiver I don't think that is seen in mental health. No, no, you're 100% right. And I know at an industry level, it's something that we're, we're trying to do better. And there's a lot of research at the moment, um, particularly about that. And, you know, say, let's say we have someone, you know, come in, uh, maybe it's suicide, 
right? Maybe it's a, someone has, has attempted to take their life. And of course there are, you know, the immediate acute um, interventions and strategies that need to take place to, to support that person and provide the support they need, right? But it has slipped through the cracks a little bit. What happens for family? What happens for, for friends? And, and, and how do we make sure that they're also getting the support that they need, right? Um, and so that's being looked at closely. I know a lot of people are, are doing a good job with that now and, and considering that, of course, it seems, you know, when we say it, uh, so logical, right? It seems so yeah. easy, but you can imagine, right? You're, you're dealing with someone you just want to provide, you know, any support service. It could be, you know, nurse, doctor, psychologist, anyone. You just want to provide the best. It's so easy. We've just talked about performance, you know, to lose sight of all those other things. Um, and so I agree that it, it's something we're trying to do better at. Um, and so what I would suggest to people is that if you are in that situation, I suppose, take a little bit of accountability and say, hey, I need to, I need help too. Yeah. I think it's a massive thing. And I know um, in the Surrey Park community, you know, we lost one of our own. And, you know, there was those resources available post-passing. But yep. that wasn't, and I mean, obviously what happens behind closed doors, people don't always know what's going on. Mm. Uh, but I don't know if there's enough support like whilst things are going on, it's always tends to be after. It's always, you know, a cure never a prevention. Yeah, uh, right. It links back to our our initial discussion about proactive, right? And yeah, and, and it being there. And I agree. And it's exactly like you said. Unfortunately, based on each kind of situation, um, you don't know, right? I, I kind of always say in psychology, you don't know until you know. People often, again, I'll have coaches come up to me on pool deck or around and say, "Hey, this is blah 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 blah. You know, what's wrong? What do we do?" So there is a lot more information we need to know before we get anywhere into that right and even if there was i'm not sharing it with you is, is kind of the other thing right um yeah of course it's confidential but um yeah you're right that's a really difficult situation when and, and I, as i said earlier that's the classic psych response at the moment which hurts my heart a little bit is once it's all happened now we respond now we react you know yeah. i'd definitely like to get us to a place where we're being proactive in that particularly in the sporting community yeah. So going on proactive, what are the things that we can implement at training? Like, let's say, you know, you're um, talking to a coaches at a club. What kind of things do you recommend should be done? You know, we at Surrey Park have, you know, at least 15 minutes activation prehab mm -hmm. before we even get yep. in the pool. What are some things that we can include in that? Yeah. So there's a lot and you can be really creative with it. I would say, you know, start small. Um, and it's hard, I suppose, when you throw it out and, and you still haven't, I suppose people haven't seen it, but let's say, you know, could, you know, five minutes of dedicated mindfulness be included at the start of those 15 minute activations? Like there's really absolutely no reason, right? Um, yeah. But what's really important with introducing those changes is that the vision and purpose is really clear, right? Yeah. You, you know yourself, right? So it's at, at SP, you know, we do our 15 minute activation. How meaningful is a lot of that 15 minute activation? well how productive is it for everybody <laughs> yeah right so and that's going to shift and move right yeah. um depending and so and now imagine you know you think about the athletes and i go hey now we're going to sit down quiet for five minutes earphones in and do this little meditation practice you know how long is that going to last maybe three days right before yeah before it drops off um so there's a process i think and that's where you know you we do need to have psychologists engaged to be able to make it meaningful for people, right? So those meditations are like, you know, stuff like Headspace is great. Don't get me wrong. Please don't understand what I'm saying. Don't use Headspace and um, a bunch of these meditation apps. But for them to be most effective, they need to be tailored to you 
right? Yep. What are the actual thoughts that you know you're dealing with, and how do we play those into the recording? What are the emotions, or to the group, right? Or to a sport context, right? They can't be too general. So that, I, I would say we can start there, and that can change. And there are some really creative, even team-based exercises that you can do for mindfulness. Um, one that I kind of really like is you maybe you pair up in twos, and you pick an object, you know, in your view, and you describe that object as deeply as you can. And you keep going, we say we'll go for two minutes or two minutes 30, right? And what happens pretty quickly at about the 30 second mark is you start to get in your own head. Hey, I'm going to, I don't know if I can say anymore here. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to, what's this person thinks I'm awkward, right? Like you start to those yeah. distractions. Now, again, they're, the way we describe it is they're not the same distractions as, you know, potentially the performance anxiety that you would feel, right? but it's the same mechanism of bringing, of leaving those to the side and bringing your attention back to where it needs to be. Right. And so you can have one person do it. The other person do it, provide feedback. It's very easy to see when someone's getting stuck in their own head. Right. And so there's a lot of different things you can do. You can make that really hard. If you really want to kind of, you know, the idea of being progressive on your mental skills and being able to do them in it, you can make people firstly have to do it. And then secondly, they have to do it maintaining eye contact. Right. So you can imagine then the emotion that starts to build with that. Right. Like this is very uncomfortable. Right. But performance is going to be uncomfortable. Um, so there's some simple things. Right. Again, can we leave? I, I think you only have to do this even three times a week. Maybe can we leave five or ten minutes to write down some of the thoughts that really got in the way of performance and how I would handle them differently? Right. Such a critical critical strategy that allows you to be better prepared next week when that thought comes back up right it's a process you know um again it's definitely some of the best programs i work with do clear goal setting yeah right the majority don't right but that needs to go a step further where is the value component of that and then how are we re-engaging with that on a daily basis Right. So again, all of those things can come into that. Maybe that 15 minutes, you know, you don't need a full 15 minutes to do it once they've been developed. Maybe it's, a, I would say, you know, a workshop twice a season, beginning of the season, middle of the season, and then maybe it's just once a week, right? And then other than potentially training diary, um, you know, where you're self-reflecting on your ability to link to the things that are important. So to put it in perspective, when I say values, most people will say, a lot of the, the first question we'll ask people to start to develop this is how do you want to be remembered as an athlete? And eventually you can do that as how do you want to be remembered as a person and you can build into it. Right. And yeah. most people will say, you know, I want to be a hard worker. I want to get the best out of myself. I want to be a good teammate. Um, you know, our very kind of general, I don't want to say general as in not meaningful, but general responses. Right. Yeah. And so to simply reflect back each day and go, or even in the moment, which is even better. Am I being that person right now? Yeah. Am I working to that level? And that's completely between you and you, right? right? Am I being the best teammate right now? Like I had a shit day. That's okay. Right. But is that driving the type of teammate that I am right now? Right. Yeah. Because it shouldn't. Right. And so those are easy strategies uh, to implement. Um, so I think all of those little things are effective, but it also I think, within session you know the next step is then hey most people I, I can whether it's running triathlon swimming even you know netball we've worked with rugby afl will have some level of i'll say easy warm-up so in swimming it might be hey let's start 400 easy 
uh, yep. 600 easy. You know, in, in netball, it might be, hey, a couple shooting drills, whatever it might be, right? How are we then going, all right, let's I'll, just swimming is our, our, our biggest sport, you know? How do we then make sure we're mindful and present for that first 400, right? So actually taking those skills that you're working with and, and applying them directly to the sport, all right? Um, what are the things you should be focusing on? Can I feel the water differently? Where is my attention? Is it on the poor session that I had this morning? Is it on the soreness that I feel in the middle of the preparation? What is it and where should it be? Um, and we'll often get, as athletes start to do that, go, well, hey, I actually felt really poor and very quickly I felt the shift in technique. All of a sudden yeah. I'm, higher, I'm higher in the water and I'm all of these things that I didn't think could change just from changing where I put my attention, all right? Um, and again, I'd say gradually over time, then it's about building those into the toughest mindsets, right? the same way we build everything. Can you gradually over time build those skills in the toughest mindset? So there's a lot um, in saying all of those skills, you know, is it workshops once a month with a psychologist? You know, that could be 60 minutes at the end of a Saturday morning session, end of a week um, to firstly teach those skills, right? Make them important, create the vision and then just check in right and then leave you guys to develop it as you need to and build it into your own um i think the ability to be creative as always so whether that's you know physiology and snc is a good example you know there's so many different ways you can load the creatively load the body to get the response that you want right and we're really good at that mental skills is the same way once we know the underlying mechanism that we're trying to get to, to build it into the training environment is actually quite fun. Like there's so many different ways we can do it. It's kind of endless, but those I would say are some basic fundamentals. Yeah, absolutely. And I know something that um, my squad particularly did during lockdown, you know, we did Zoom, I think just like everybody else yeah. in the world during lockdown. Um, and one of the techniques we tried was a visual, visualization mm. of racing and things like that. And that was really interesting. And we did some goal setting and things like that too. So going on self-reflection, how important is it to, you know, we've set goals. Mm. Then I think a lot of people, we just forget about it. Like, yep, yep goals written down, mm -hmm. yep, move on. And I think too in sport is we're always so focused on what's next yep. that we don't take a moment to step back and think about what we're doing right now. Like, Absolutely. you know, you finish a race, you know, you've got to meet, finish one race, you did really well, but you don't actually think about that because you're thinking about the next race. You've already yep. moved on to this thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, and this is the idea of goal setting. And I would say then the difference between effective goal setting, right? Um, but also the value link. Right? So for me, you have your goal it can be as specific or as broad really as you want it to be. I don't think personally, because the goal itself is not actually critically important. It's yeah. as you've just described, right? It's the things that sit underneath that. For me, then it's got to be a really clear link to the value, right? Which value have I identified? What type of person I want to be is linked to this. Right? So hard work is, in that, is a classic one, right? So if I want to go a 57, 500 back, let's just say, um, you know, I know that I'm going to have to put in a certain amount of hard work to be able to do that. So there's a clear value link. Then what are the behaviors that sit underneath that? Right. And so there might be some clear situations that are barriers at the moment, right? So there's some things that it's like, Hey, I really don't like a specific type of work or at a specific time or whatever it may be. We all kind of know that maybe it's aerobic work. Maybe it's a Saturday morning. Maybe it's kick pull, whatever it is. Like I have this tendency to shy away from it because I don't like it. Yeah. 
linking that really clearly to that value and really clearly to that goal and then having it really clearly stated we call it really a commitment schedule right when at when that moment came what did i do right and so one of the things i think is important in that is we have a tendency to systematically undervalue how much positivity we gain from doing those things right so we'll often think about um, let's say I avoid a situation that I don't like. It could be aerobic work, you know, and you could take this into any aspect of life. Maybe it's a social setting. Maybe I'm just not doing that well. And so I avoid a situation, right? I kind of know straight away when I avoid it, that I'm going to feel better because it's going to remove that discomfort, that uncomfortable feeling, right? Yeah. We don't think about the long-term negative of what avoiding that is going to create, <laughs> right? We're not yeah. good at that. When it comes to behavior, we do the opposite. Right. So when it comes to behavior, we know long-term the benefit. We're really clear. The, the example I'll often give to people is a diet, right? It's like, hey, I'm, I'm on a diet, which I'll, you shouldn't be necessarily. We won't talk about it necessarily, <laughs> right? But hey, I'm on this diet and you know, whatever it may be, body composition is important, but I'm on this diet or I'm trying to eat better, whatever that means for you, right? I know if I come home from a tough day on Friday and you know, smash this liter of ice cream, it's not going to be the best for me right now. That's the opposite or it is going to be great for me right now, but I know it's not going to be the best for me down the road. Yeah. All right. What we tend to do if we swip that is like, Hey, if I actually, you know, cook the meal that I plan to cook and do the things that I plan to do, we don't, we're not good at recognizing how good we will feel after that. Yeah. Right. From going through that and being like, Hey, I did what I wanted to do. I stuck to it. I said it. So we really do undervalue those things. Um, and I think to that point is where it comes back to then, you know, as you said, making sure we celebrate the small wins, right? So we've identified this situation that's, it could be a barrier or it could just be something that, hey, I, I need to take this to the next level to perform, right? Every time it comes up, I'm recording what it was, right? What day it was, what my thought and emotions were around it. You can then self-reflect on what you did with those thoughts and emotions, right? We kind of talked about some strategies today. And then I'm writing out of 10, how good did I feel after it, right? And most of the time it's like, if I did what I said I was going to commit to link to my goals and values, I'm like an eight out of 10 positive, right? Or I'm a seven out of 10 and taking that reflection and going, holy sh yeah, I feel good, right? But if we don't take the time to actually start that self-reflection, we don't recognize it. Yeah. Right? It's like you said, we go on to the next. Now, over time, if you take, I would say it doesn't take that long in our experience. If you do that for, you know, a week, two weeks in a, in a sporting setting, most people then start to do it naturally. Like they'll start to get out of the session and be like, yeah, I got that one. Right. You know, yeah. they, they start, but it's as with any skill development, it's hard at the beginning and becomes more automatic. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've had a few coaches over the years um, and even different clubs. I think it's definitely something both athletes and coaches skip over quite a lot, particularly at meets and mm -hmm. comps, you know. Yeah, all this race is done. We're going to have to think about the next one now. Like we need to move on. Like we're very quick to move on to the next thing. Everything just seems a bit rushed. We yep. don't take a moment mm -hmm. to say, hey, okay, we actually did this well. Let's take a moment to celebrate that before we go on to the next thing yeah i love that and that's even at, at a bigger level than what we just described which i love what do you think that is if i throw back to you where do you think that comes from oh i mean i think that comes in not even just in sport i think we all seem to be in such a rush to get things done and we 
just don't take a moment to appreciate what we've achieved to get to that point. You know, at some point, you know, if you go back, you wished you had achieved what you have right now. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at some point, that's what you wanted. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what you wanted. Mm -hmm. Now that you've done it, now you go on to the next thing. It's like, whoa, hang on a second. Take a step back. You know, a few years ago, this is exactly where you wanted to be. And you haven't even taken a moment to achieve that. And even my friend, um, not through swimming, but through placement, um, she was saying, you know, I spent, you know, three years trying to get this degree and I've allocated an hour to celebrate. She goes, why have I done that? Yeah. I've allocated one hour to celebrate three years. Yeah. Because I've literally set aside that much time. She goes, what? Like, that seems ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just going to then, yep, allocate now and then move on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating. I think it, you know, it comes with a lot of the things we spoke about. The idea is being present, right? Yeah. Are we present in this moment right now? If you are, you're good. I sometimes I, I'll oversimplify it again because I've said before, I think it's so valuable, but you know, most discomfort or distress comes in past or future, right? If I'm right here, right now, I'm generally good. Yeah. Right. Now, when people, as you were saying, are, you know, excessively in the future, and then we start to see that we're rushing to the next, I'd say that's a mild anxiety response. Yeah. That's, that's what it looks like right? Is, Hey, I'm rushing to look at this next thing. I've got so, you know, right. Instead of just being right here and celebrating really tough thing. And I think it's one of those ones in particular that in psychology, again, gets kind of thrown in this fluff basket. If it's not managed appropriately, this idea of being present, like being present, being present is, is so key, but it needs to be clearly linked um, to the situation and to the benefits to the individual. Um, Often it's just kind of thrown. It's like, oh, we'll just think about being present and we'll be fine. And it's, it's obviously not as easy as that, right? Um, I think in the situation of your friend, which is even, again, the, the more complex component of a psychology, you would have to think back to, and this comes back to goals and values. Often we see people, right? It's we get to this stage of this thing that we thought was important, but then was it actually important? Right. And yeah. that's where taking the time to know who we are and what is really important and not have that, um, be dictated to by outside distractions. And, and I say outside distractions, which are other people or comparisons or these belief structures that we've set up over time or our thoughts or our emotions. Now they might be, they, they could still be the right thing and we're still just rushing through, right? That was the one thing I wanted. But for a lot of people, definitely in sport, is we get to this moment and it's like, hey, why was this moment actually important to me? Yeah. And we've got to have reflection. Again, comes back to my idea about being proactive about it's never the thing that you gain it's the person you become Mm. that's the that's the moment right that's the key takeaway from all from all achievement right so do we know the person that we're trying to become as we're getting to this thing yeah definitely and i think also too um thinking about it even further is there is i mean i see it i don't know if other people do like a stigma in the sense that if you celebrate something that you're good at that you're almost seen as cocky yeah um but on the other hand like even for me like I won't do it because I don't want to be seen as cocky Mm. but like let's say you're my friend and assuming you've achieved this massive thing that you've been wanting to do for ages I'm going to pump you up and get you excited and make sure that you celebrate but I don't want to do the same if it was me 
Yeah. What do you think that is? I don't know. I think, as I said, I think it's a stigma of coming across as cocky and self-absorbed. And yeah, I think that for me is probably the main thing. Yeah. Perception of others is always um, a difficult thing um, to work through. And then the idea of, you know, do others actually perceive us as cocky and, and arrogant because we do like, we actually don't know. I think that's a super important thing to understand. It's like, we actually think we're very good at knowing what other people think and, and, <laughs> and we actually are not right. No. And being able to put that in perspective, but yeah, I would agree with, and I even had a conversation with someone earlier uh, this week about this idea of, you know, this athlete was super excited to race you know, which is something that's new for her, that some of the things that we've been struggling with. Um, and she didn't want to admit that, right? Mm. She's like, I don't want to say that I'm excited to race because there was ex potential expectations that came with that. Yeah. You know? And there doesn't have to be. And, and these are some of the things that we thought, it's like, hey, we can just generally be happy to race and nothing more. And that's okay, right? And it doesn't mean it's going to be good or it's going to be, or we're putting expectations with it. It's just, this is where we are. Um, but I, I think I agree. The ability to celebrate um, is something that I, I, the way I put it in sport is there's nearly become, and I, psychology is somewhat to blame for this, I think, um, that emotions are bad. Yeah. Both negative and positive, right? It's like we should be emotionally level all the time and we're these robots that can just execute, right? And of course, that's not the way it is. It's, it's always contextual. And, and the idea that we should be able to process and definitely show positive. And I, what I think is the most interesting, if we think about our, our favorite athletes and our favorite coaches, and they're never really, you know, they're never robots. They're the most emotional. They're the ones really showing that emotion and that passion and that drive at the right time and in the right way, right? Um, but it's never this idea that we just don't celebrate or we don't get disappointed, right? Yeah, and that's something that um, my psychologist has spoken to me a lot about is that emotions are not good or bad. Mm. You can't oh, yeah. label an emotion as good or bad because, no. you know, if, you know, someone that you love has passed, mm -hmm. it's not bad that you're upset. No. That's normal. Yeah, absolutely. It would be bad <laughs> if you weren't upset, if, if, we're, if exactly. we're totally honest, right? No, I agree so much. And so I'll throw to this because I love the way, you know, your psychologist is talking here because I agree so much that there is the how we attribute emotions is on us right it's our our perception of there are no good or bad emotions right but there are responses that are interesting what's your kind of thoughts on that that you've worked through with your psych yeah i agree i think you know as i said there's no good or bad emotion some are more uncomfortable to sit with than others mm. and you may not want to feel that yes but it doesn't mean it's bad no. or it doesn't mean it's good no no. And I, so I would say the next step, I think from a, that we would really like to understand is what is then the response to the emotion? That's the key. The emotion itself, if we get, you know, if you can get really, really great mental skills, the emotion, <laughs> emotion itself is, is kind of nothing. Yeah. Right? It's, it's there. Act. It's a part of life, but it's the response to yeah. the emotion. And again, it's not about a good or bad response, but it's about a response based on a situation and a context. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and what's our anchor point for that? Goals and values. Who do we want to be? Yeah, definitely. Oh, there's been so many things in this chat. There's so many other things to unpack. Is there anything else that you want to add in? Um, I don't think so. I think, yeah, we've had, we've had a, a really interesting conversation. Um, hopefully people take some 
value out of it. The only thing I suppose I would add, I'm probably sure you added some as that is, you know, if you are looking for help, you know, reach out. There are obviously, you know, Beyond Blue, uh, Lifeline, there's plenty of support. Um, if you're interested in knowing more about performance psychology, you can definitely reach out to us. All right, so um, P3 Performance Psychology, um, we have social media, but our email is info at p3psychology.com. I'm sure we can probably link or do something with that. Yeah, I'll put that in the notes. Um, and again, we're super responsive to just questions and emails, right? So don't feel like you have to like make this commitment to, to seeing a psychology. That's not um, what we're about. Um, if you give us a call and you kick us an email, um, we will give you some insight and we'll give you some time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's been so insightful. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Perfectly Flawed podcast. If you would like to stay up to date for when the next episode is being released, you can follow myself on Instagram at Renee Fox, or you can follow the podcast at perfectly underscore flawed underscore podcast. I'll chat to you next time. Bye.